Hello and welcome to the Control in the Variable. I'm Sonia. And I'm Sarah. And we're two postgraduate research students trying to make science more accessible for everyone. Hi everyone, welcome back. This is episode three of the Control in the Variable. Thank you all for listening. We've also realised that over the past couple of weeks, we've had a great increase in listeners. So welcome if you're new and thank you if you have been a loyal listener. Yeah, thank you guys. I mean, we enjoy doing this and we hope you enjoy listening. Great. So last episode, Sarah, I was talking about chapter 10 from the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. It's one of the best books I think I've ever read. And not only because it's so well written, it's so easy to understand, but it's also so life-changing. There are so many things that I've read in this book that have made me think, oh, well, when that didn't go right in my life, I don't think it was fully because of me. I think it's because of the system. And I've decided to adopt a way of life that is very much white man confidence. Um, Sure. (laughs) And I was talking to my friend, shout out to Manpreet. Um, I was talking to her the other day and we were saying how when you genuinely adopt the mindset of pretending like you do belong somewhere, especially in our industry that is very dominated by uh, white older males. When you do adopt that mindset of, right, well, I do belong here, honestly, life is so much easier. I sleep a lot better at night. Oh, that's really, like, empowering. So I think, yeah, I think I could do with thinking like that as well, definitely. Try to embody that from now on. <laughs> yeah, I hope you do, Sarah. So, <laughs> I was halfway through explaining chapter 10, titled The Drugs Don't Work, in the previous episode. So, just a quick sort of recap. I recounted the facts that women's health and medical knowledge is lacking, and as a result, women are at danger of misdiagnosis and having to live with excess pain purely because the male body is default and we don't have a lot of information about how women's bodies react differently. So let's talk about drug evaluation and clinical trials. So as we're all aware, clinical trials follow a pattern of animal testing or, you know, other kind of non-human testing. And then it goes on to phase one trials, phase two, three, four, however many are required. So in phase one, which is arguably one of the most important ones, as that's where you discover whether number one, the drug is safe, and number two, if kind of something's happening, only 22% of participants in these phase one trials are women. And this isn't great as, technically speaking, an adverse reaction can be that the drug just doesn't work. So we're now asking the question of whether drugs that have been halted in progression from phase one um, were simply stopped because they didn't work on men, but they could have potentially worked on women, but there just weren't enough women working, uh, not working, but participating in these phases to determine whether it could be helpful. Um, there's also a difference in our responses to drugs, depending on what part of the menstrual cycle you're in. So a lot of women who are involved in trials are usually um, allowed to join in a particular part of the menstrual cycle where 
their symptoms, well not symptoms, their hormones are very similar to men, but they don't do a lot of research on women throughout their cycles because obviously depending on where you are in your cycle your body reacts differently and this has been seen in drugs like antipsychotics, antihistamines, antibiotics, antidepression medication, all of those things are dependent upon where you are in your cycle. So that's really interesting and ironically we've known for over 60 years that there, is, there are sex differences in animals, yet for so many years, many scientists have denied that it happens to humans. Which I think is so funny because we are very established in the idea that it's different for animals, but we seem to think that we're not anything like animals and that we are somehow all the same, but we're, we're not. But obviously, obviously, I'd li I need to caveat that one because I almost heard myself. We are different in terms of like how we respond to things. Obviously we are all equal and there is no one race or one gender that is more superior to another. Shout out to Angela Saini for um, educating us all on that. But yeah, don't, don't misunderstand me please. So some examples were that male and female cells were exposed to estrogen, which is the female hormone, and then to a virus. And only female cells responded to the estrogen and were able to fight the virus. So this is information that we have where sometimes medicine might work in our favour, but not men. And so because there are so few women taking part in trials, we are unaware of the benefits that we could have, if that makes sense. So basically the solution is that we need to disaggregate the data based on sex and we need to actually use women in trials and ensure that women in trials are representative of the female experience. Because let's say in the trials they've all got women on a particular part of their cycle partaking in a drug trial and then this drug gets approved and gets prescribed to you when you're on a different part of your cycle and therefore it might not work or it might have adverse reactions or different side effects. I'm just going to list really for the next bit of my paper explanation some times that we know that health and medicine is different for women. So in the health concern of diabetes a paper was published indicating that high intensity interval training which is honestly just hell is really good for men with diabetes. However it's not very good for women who have diabetes it does nothing for them and the reason for that is because men are able to burn a lot of carb calories through high intensity interval training however this sort of training burns more fat in women and so it won't help with diabetes the same way however I have heard of many women being told to try out high-intensity in high interval training to regulate their diabetes. I assume this is also type 2 diabetes, I can't imagine this being for type 1. Do we have? We have concussion. Even though women have more concussions in general, we don't have a very clear idea of how women respond to concussions. And this might be because concussions are only studied in sportsmen. Well, not only, I, I assume there are other research, but because men in sports get researched more than women. So we don't know about really the effects of concussion and stuff on women. Also, muscle rehab 
Or did you know, Sarah, that men and women have different ratios of muscle fibre? Really? I didn't know that. I don't know that either. And so as a response to that, we're not entirely sure how female muscles respond to rehab the same way that we know men's muscles do. Another one is bathing, something as similar as bathing. So a study that did not include women at all said that a hot bath is equivalent to exercise in terms of anti-inflammatory responses and blood sugar. But women were not included in this study and therefore we are unsure whether bathing would help. I really don't think a hot bath would help (laughs) with that (laughs) because I think a lot of us take hot baths and I think we're all still fairly not improved with our health. But you know there's so much data out there. It's also mentioned in the book that many Uh, medical doctors and professors who teach here in the UK base a lot of their lectures on studies that were done in North America, so Canada, because in Canada, the Canadian Institute for Health, as well as here in Europe, the German Society of Epidemiology, for their, their rules, I suppose, they require papers or projects on only one sex to share what they would expect to happen on the other they didn't study. So that's really encouraging studies and trials to have more representative groups of people in their trials, to include women in their data. And it's only with this more data that we will be able to make very good and clear diagnoses and regimens and medication and all those kind of decisions Because clearly we don't have enough data to support a lot of the medications and methods of treating that we use now. So I found that very interesting. And there's also a really sad story in there of a girl. She, when she was very young, I think maybe 13, 14, she had extreme kind of intestinal pain and cramping and her bowel movements were very sore and bloody and she went to the doctor and the doctors kind of dismissed her pain and said that oh it must be you are you pregnant and they just asked her if she was pregnant she said no but they didn't take her no for an answer and they did a whole like check they put her up in stirrups and everything like that and you know prodded and poked her and it was only years and years later that she went and got a colonoscopy and they found out that she had irritable bowel syndrome and she had high levels of inflammation and scarring on half of her intestines but she wasn't taken seriously because she was a woman and she was a young girl actually she was I think only 16 when it got really bad but she had to live with that pain for so long just because her symptoms were not generic generic being what a lot of men experience wow that I mean that's really interesting a lot of lot of the things that you mentioned I've never even uh, thought of before so for example um, medicine how effective a medicine is depending on what stage of your menstrual cycle like that never even crossed my mind so that's super interesting yeah of course because the way that our bodies respond to drugs for example is you know an alteration in our body's responses and I guess if we have varying cycles of hormone levels and all that sort of thing you know it almost seems 
obvious now that you know yeah and you wonder why it was never obvious for the people researching before you know yeah it's one of those things it's like oh it makes so much sense but you like you don't realize it until it's pointed out I guess absolutely so thank you for sharing that um shall I share my paper this week yes please so my next paper which is in air quotes because it's actually a news article from New Scientist is about how green spaces are good for mental health so this is probably not surprising to anyone but I wanted to talk about it now as I think during the pandemic it's all made us appreciate nature a bit more and going outside for walks since it's basically the only thing any of us can do anymore. I know for me as well, I've now become this crazy nature lady who will literally stop what I'm doing to save a bee on the sidewalk if it's looking tired. (laughs) So yeah, I've definitely started to appreciate nature and being outside a lot more. So this article sort of collates information from loads of papers that have sprung up in the last few years. And they all talk about the link between exposure to nature and improved physical and mental health. So there is evidence that nature can help specific conditions such as depression, anxiety. It can relieve stress and increase happiness. And it can even help generate a sense of meaning to life, which is very um, existential. But I guess I can see how I can see that happening. The article also highlights some really interesting things which I never heard of or didn't know about. So one interesting fact that they mentioned is that in the Shetland Islands, which is up in Scotland, doctors since 2018 can prescribe nature-based activities to treat mental health conditions and stress. So they can literally just prescribe you a walk on the beach or bird watching. Um, obviously maybe alongside more conventional uh, traditional treatments but I just thought that was really nice because I've definitely noticed the impact of just being outside and stuff like that so I can see how it could be really helpful. Another study that the article mentions describes how adding just 10 trees to a city block can have a huge impact to people's perceptions of their mental health and well-being. And amazingly, it's the equivalent of giving each household in that city block an extra $10,000. So just planting those 10 trees can make people feel that much better. And I mean, that, that fact alone is really interesting. And on top of this, I don't think you can talk about this topic without mentioning how more disadvantaged families will suffer more from a lack of exposure to nature because it's just less available when you live in urban areas. So this article also emphasises the point of making urban areas greener, uh, such as having like garden rooftops on top of buildings. And they do mention lots of other really cool facts and statistics and ideas. So this is generally quite a cheery, feel-good article with loads of ideas collated in one place and I think we could all take like a little something from reading this article whether it's just um, going out for walks to improve your mental health and de-stress to providing ideas on how to live greener in urban areas yeah wow 
that's definitely a really almost again a very obvious thing that being very close to plants is, is definitely good for us because before we lived in you know before we lived in houses and blocks and flats and everything like that we were animals and lived in the in the nature so it makes sense that we get closer <laughs> to nature now <laughs> Yeah, they do mention it as well. I can't remember to the top of my head, but there's a theory that we feel good in nature and outside because obviously uh, in evolutionary terms, that's how our ancestors would have lived and survived in like very lush green areas with lots of lots of wildlife and stuff, I guess. So mm. that makes sense. Definitely. I have this really nice little lucky bamboo plant and I must say it provides me quite a lot of happiness like there's something really nice (laughs) about growing your own plants and seeing them get bigger and they have flowers well bamboos obviously don't but you know they get bigger and yeah there's something really nice about it so yeah definitely that makes sense but it is a great shame that even no even in happiness that comes from plants there is a social divide based on how much money you have and 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 all of that so that's really quite tragic yeah it's definitely something that should be tackled as well because then of course it has not just it has mental and physical impact which will I guess better everyone in society and obviously the environmental impact so it's just like a win-win situation. Okay, joining us today is a fellow alumni from Royal Holloway. She did her bachelor's with us in the biomedical department. Introducing Asma, how are you? Hello, Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm great, how about you? Yeah, we're doing okay, aren't we, Zara? Yeah, living the life. (laughs) (laughs) Alone and at home. (laughs) Exactly. So thank you, Asma, for joining us. Can you share with our listeners your story, so where you've come from and where you are now? Yeah, so the reason why I chose biomedical science was because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought that biomedical science will open like a lot of doors for me later on, and it did. So after graduation, I thought I wanted to be a physician associate. So I got some experience working as a carer and a volunteer in a local hospital. But I don't know, like it just felt wrong, like it wasn't me. So a couple of months before the pandemic, I signed up with an online coach and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And I became a lot more aware about nutrition and training so I thought hmm I wonder if there's like any postgraduate courses about sport nutrition and there was and you know I found the perfect course I quickly wrote my personal statement and sent off my application like within 10 days and here I am halfway through my master's. Brilliant yeah it's so nice that you tried other things before but what got you into nutrition? How did you move from wanting to be a physician assistant all the way to sports and nutrition? Yeah. Okay. So I was always like involved in sports. I did a bunch of things back in school and I actually stuck with one thing, which was karate. You're a black belt, right? Yes. Yeah. Watch out listeners. Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, Yeah, so when I signed up with my online coach, I realized how naive I was about nutrition, like, you know, portion size and nutritional value of foods. 
And when I started to implement a healthier lifestyle and hit my macro target for the day, I started to see a difference in my karate performance. And it made me realize like how important nutrition is and how it can optimize sport performance. And that's when I was really intrigued about nutrition. And also like if we go back, you know, a few years back, I really struggled with my weight. Like one time I'm overweight and then the other time I'm just, you know, anemic because of my severe diet restriction. Mm. And, you know, this was an ongoing cycle for me for like, you know, seven, eight years. And this was because like I was naive about, you know, nutrition in general. And I feel like everyone has the, you know, the right to know how to like implement a healthy lifestyle. And I think one of the problems is that they don't really know how and where to start. Mm. So my aim is to like not only help athletes optimize their performance but also to like educate people about nutrition and help them implement a healthier lifestyle and just healthy relationship with food really yeah that really is important I think a lot of us aren't really taught how to have that relationship with food yeah Um, exactly and it's just you know I feel like it's one of the basic things that we really have to know for sure yeah that's really interesting so how much has your perception of food changed since starting your degree? Yeah, like a lot, like especially like with sports, because like, for example, let's take like marathon. Um, like you don't really know um, like the backstory of marathons, like about, you know, nutrition and what goes behind the scenes, like, you know, before like three hours before the marathon and, you know, half an hour before before and during and after like there are a lot of things that go on Mm. and you know and before my degree I just you know didn't know like I just thought you know it was a marathon and that's it Mm. but you know there are a lot of things that you know go on and what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about nutrition yeah I think that's that's a good question Uh, I think I have like two things that I want to talk about so the first one is that people like often think that if they want to lose weight, they have to cut back on like carbs, like rice, bread, pasta, you know, and so on. But the thing is like carbohydrate is the main source of energy for the body. And, and if you cut it out, then your body needs to rely on other like sources from energy, such as ketones. Mm. And, and for me, that's like not a natural process and it's not sustainable. And I think the second thing is I was um, reading a book a while back on, on how to like maintain your weight after a weight loss phase. And they said something that was so true. So when people sign up for, let's say, um, like a 12 week program, they think, okay, it's just 12 weeks and, and that's it. But in reality, it's, it's not the case. The 12 weeks should help you implement a healthy lifestyle rather than it being like a period that once you finish from it, you just like go back to your old habits. Absolutely. I guess that's why so many people have like yo-yo diets where they just constantly lose and gain weight. Yeah, exactly. And and I actually experienced that myself, like, you know, because I, I really struggled with my weight and, you know, one time I'm overweight and then the other time I'm anemic, you know, because of all the, the diet restrictions. And this went on like for like seven, eight years. So yeah, I actually experienced it. And I think that's because like I was naive about nutrition mm. and you know I didn't know like how to have like a healthy lifestyle I guess. Following that I have um, a question about how you integrate the idea of body positivity into sports and nutrition because obviously 
sports and nutrition is all about you know being the fittest that you can and i don't know whether you use like the bmi as like a, a reference which by the way was created with eugenics in mind yeah where does that fit in to the whole idea of being positive about your body yeah that's actually a really good question because like sometimes like if if you're like an elite athlete that doesn't always mean that you're healthy Mm. because um they can always like go to um like some extreme measures so yeah you know it's not always the case that you're healthy and it's it's a really important like point to um like have a positive body image uh, with like sports Mm. especially like with um like sports that rely on um like low body mass like for example like running or gymnastics and on that topic of the keto, like ketones and keto, like is it keto diet that people do? The research that goes on in my lab explores the ketogenic diet as a treatment for like epilepsy and things like that. And yes, when you think yeah. about it, the idea of going on a ketogenic diet is to slow your brain down, to stop yeah, it from exactly. being epileptic. So if you don't have epilepsy, it doesn't really make sense that you would starve your brain like that. Exactly yeah that's what people don't really like know and that's when um like science um like goes hand in hand because if you don't really know the science behind it then you don't really know what you're doing yeah like you might definitely see the results in your body but mentally you're not doing yourself any exactly yeah like it's not it's not something natural no how much of your research is into like the microbiome and how that affects your nutrition and your weight and things like that uh yeah so like for example we have like um like a research going on about how to like train your gut mm. especially with uh, like marathon runners because they have to take in like a lot of carbs um you know during the race and you know before and after so yeah that's like a really ongoing research now mm. yeah that's really interesting because it always reminds me of i think sarah had the paper of um they did a fecal implant of a skinny mouse yeah their poop (laughs) was eaten by a fat mouse and then the fat mouse lost weight (laughs) 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 i always think about that when people talk about the microbiome i'm like to become skinny do i have to like eat somebody else's poop like i don't want to do that (laughs) yeah (laughs) That's probably an extreme way, but I'm sure there's ways. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I have a question. So you're a twin, I'm also a twin. We both did our undergraduate degrees at the same universities as our twin. You went a step further and did the same degree as your twin. What's it like now, moving away from her and doing something completely different to what she's doing? Yeah, like it's so weird um, because we've always done everything together you know we had the same friends um you know same school same class same degree so it kind of was you know a bit of a shock when everyone like went you know separate ways um but yeah I still call her every day though yeah of course (laughs) it's impossible not to yeah but I always I always like that because we'd go to classes and like I'd always see you and your twin and I could always tell the difference between the two of you. It's very obvious yeah. for me. I don't know. I think it's a bit surprising to see two twins do the same course at the same university because also Royal Holloway isn't yeah. like the kind of uni that you can just, anyone can get into. Like it's not the hardest one to get into, yeah. but it's not the easiest. So it's really quite interesting to see 
both twins getting in um to the same one yeah exactly <laughs> i just had like a brainwave i'm sure you've probably like thought of it before because you did the same degree um you could have like both learned half of like you could have done half the exams and then oh wait no because you'd be in the same exam okay. duh yeah, sarah gosh <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, like we used to help each other a lot um, for our coursework and, and exams. Um, oh. Yeah, which was you know which was really nice. Yeah, that is really nice. Because <laughs> even though I went to the same university as my twin, she was doing something completely different, so it wasn't very yeah. helpful at all. But you know, there are so many of us yeah. who went to the same university as twins, like as sets. There were two twins in my really? sister's class. Um, they were both taking economics. Um, there was Andrew okay. in our year. She came and her twin was doing, I think, English. So On the way. There, there were loads of us. We really should have started a committee or a society. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if I have curiosity, um, you're not like identical twins, right? No, we're not. But we do look very okay. similar. Okay, because I felt like I'm not dreaming, right? Because I, I can like um, see the difference. Yes. Um, and yeah, at first I didn't, but then, you know, um, but now it's really obvious. I do feel like that's a skill that twins have. Like, we're very much able to differentiate between other twins yeah, very well. I think so. Yeah, it's like a gift that we're given. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your twin doing? So she's now, she um, did her master's in IVF. Oh, and. Wow. She's now working in a clinic in, in London. That's very impressive. So um, what kind of advice would you give to current undergrads that are wondering what to do next? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, so, you know, my advice would be not to force anything. Like for me, I was kind of like forcing the idea of physician associate and it didn't feel right. So take your time, you know, don't stress about it. And it's not a bad thing to explore and see what you enjoy and what you don't. Like, I guess some people are lucky and they know what they want to do like right from the beginning and that's fantastic but someone like me I just did not have any clue but things will eventually come along and, and work out that's lovely advice thank you what's next for you do you have a plan after you finish your master's degree I mean it's totally fine if you don't because I'm still wandering around with no idea what <laughs> yeah basically Sarah's asking for advice on what she should do next <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, right now, like I'm going for my personal training qualification, and my aim is to combine both nutrition and training because you don't really see this combination often, and you know you see fantastic personal trainers and you know nutritionists that really know this stuff, but not really both. And I, I remember there was a person trainer um, in the gym and he was giving out some of his meal plans. And, you know, I was curious. So I had a look and it was just absolutely ridiculous. You know, there was rice and chicken for breakfast. For, for breakfast? <laughs> yeah, literally rice and chicken. And, you know, when I saw this, I didn't even bother to look at the rest because it was just so unrealistic. And, you know, that's not the point. No, exactly. It's supposed to be both, you know, good for you and feasible, like with a... Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's really important. Yeah. Also, it's really refreshing to see somebody like yourself, a woman in science, but also a Muslim woman in science, going on mm -hmm. and doing a role that I don't think 
we've seen people like you in. So can you share your experience as a Muslim woman who wears a headscarf in science? Yeah, so uh, like, believe it or not, like I'm the only one who wears a headscarf um, in my whole entire course and it can be intimidating. But, um, you know, I look at it, I'm like, you know, at the bright side and I say, you know, it's not a bad thing to stand out. No, that's great. It's your yeah. special selling point. It's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, but like, let, let's say like, um, in terms of like training and stuff, mm-hmm. it can be very difficult because, you know, the gyms are really like a male dominant arena, let's say. Um, mm. Yeah. So for me, like, it's very difficult to be modest and not be self-conscious at the same time. I'm sure that you having this position and you being in this role is very inspiring to other women who look like you and also women who aren't like you. Um, I'm very inspired by yeah, thank what you. you do. And I love your Instagram, it's great. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm trying my best. Can you describe a day in the life of you? Because you've already said that you wake up early and you go to the gym. What's it like to be a master's by nutrition student and then also how has covid affected all of that now like our uni uh, we're doing half in person and half online lectures so uh, we have in-person labs and um, online just online you know lectures and seminars i don't think that's a really bad thing because um, i have more time to do other stuff so for example um, I wake up in the morning and you know go to the gym and I have the chance to eat breakfast and you know just um, log in the five minutes before the lecture which is you know really time saving for me. Yeah it definitely is it's so much more convenient to have things online you don't <laughs> you don't have to go anywhere. But like at the same time like I really want to socialize mm. so. So what do your labs mm. consist of? Our labs we have we had like three mini projects so we looked at um, like creatine supplementation on sprint performance and we looked at a carbohydrate supplementation during you know an exhaustive exercise so yeah we had like two big projects they were separated like four weeks between and so what are your test subjects yourself yeah so um so yeah so like a week before the um, actual lab you know the lecturer asked who wants to volunteer but I never volunteered because I don't know if like my fitness level is okay and you know and um and the actual like the the tests are you know they're a bit difficult for me so you know I thought like I'm not really bothered to you know do the tests and stuff but yeah um they are volunteers from our course that's really cool I bet that's like quite fun as well maybe not to be the volunteer (laughs) it's nice because you know the the volunteers are actually like maybe they're more comfortable around us because they know us and we have to like you know like uh, tell them yeah you can do it you know and stuff like that towards the end because it's really you know it's it's a difficult test you know what that reminds me of I remember the practical that we did where we were in groups of four this is during our undergrad and one person had to constantly pee in a pot and then oh we had to gosh. keep on testing their pee. What was that and why did we do that? That was the weirdest thing we ever did. I, I agree. It was just, you know, really awkward and, you know. We did like strips of paper and whoever pulled out the smallest strip lost and then they had to do it. Thank God I picked like one of the longest strips. But gosh, I couldn't look at the girl who gave us her pee ever again in the same way. It was so bad. <laughs> I think me and my friend, we decided to pick a boy to work with because, you know, that's just going to be a lot simpler. 
<laughs> what was that? Will Holloway, if anyone's listening, why did you do that to us? What was the point? <laughs> there was nothing I learned from that lab except, you know, how to not look people in the eye. It was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I literally... You just unlocked that memory for me. I don't know what the practical was. I just remember the piece. I'm very sorry. Okay, so Asma, at the end of every episode, we always ask our guest, what is the stupidest thing you've ever done in the lab? Oh, God. Okay. Um, I think, like, we all did something stupid during the practicals, you know, at some point during our undergrad. But I think mine would be during Dr. McAvoy's practical. And I think we had to, like, mix two things together in, like, a volumetric flask. Mm -hmm. And he told us to shake the flask gently and, you know, maximum two to three times. But I don't know what hit me. And I just shook it as hard as I can. It's your inner black belt that was like, I must do this aggressively. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) um yeah and you know whilst I was thinking that it literally exploded on my lab partner and I thought oh my god like that's why he told us to shake it gently (laughs) and you know she had to change her lab coat and wash her face and all that and yeah she was pretty annoyed at me (laughs) and um yeah and and the funny thing is like I looked around to see if anyone anyone made the same mistake as I did and no one did and and then I thought wow like that was so stupid of me (laughs) Oh no, I mean obviously we have to ask, is your friend okay? <laughs> yeah, like her face got really red and stuff, but yeah, she's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shout out to your friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Sarah has a funny story as well about spilling things and yeah. which we'll share in another podcast, I'm sure. But one for me was it was a lab, I think it was in second year, and we were running a an electrophoresis gel. Me and my friend, shout out to Catty, we loaded the samples onto the gel before we submerged it under the buffer. Yeah. So for our listeners, normally you make your gel and then you submerge it underneath your buffer. And in your gel, you have these little wells. And within mm. the wells, you put your DNA samples. And we loaded them outside. And then as we were submerging them, all of our samples came yeah. out of the wells. And it was so embarrassing. We were so silly. And... Um, yeah. Yeah, and it was such a shame because I distinctly remember which lecturer it was and she thought so highly of us before that moment. (laughs) We felt like we'd not only let ourselves down, we'd let her down too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I think like we have to do something stupid, you know. Yeah, otherwise what else are you going to talk about on our podcast, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, Radio Public and Breaker. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are control and variable. You can also follow us on our own personal Twitters of Sonia underscore Shinma. And Sarah Muscat with a three on the end. Because Sarah Muscat one and two were taken. Yes. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please leave a review. And we hope you enjoyed it. You'll hear us again next time. Bye.